Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to the John Papaloni Show. Boy, do we have a treat for you today. We have a really special guest, a legend in real estate. We are going to welcome Mr. Sam McDaddy. It's a pleasure being here. Absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to this, all excited. I mean, you are the legend here. So, I mean, I've uh, followed your career and uh, you were an inspiration to me. Oh, amazing, amazing. I just want to mention this episode is sponsored by They Record. So, Sam, why don't we get started with the episode with uh, most people here? I mean, let's be honest. I called you a legend because most people are going to know you. But I do have some American followers in my uh, podcast who may not know your name or may know your name. But why don't we start off with just a bit of a uh, history of, uh, you know, who you are, what you do and all that stuff. So people who don't know will get Sure. So just kind of going back in my earlier years, um, I was... A pretty avid tennis player, I was able to play at a competitive level. I was fortunate enough to get a tennis scholarship in the States. So I spent four and a half years in a university near New Orleans. And then after that, I furthered my education, did an MBA at the University of South Carolina, came back to Canada and thought, you know, the corporate path was the logical path. And I did that for a couple of years and I really felt unhappy. I wasn't fulfilled. And I used to get the Sunday night blues where I'd wake up, you know, like go to bed Sunday, think, oh, I got to go to work Monday. And I thought, you know what? You know, I've got a, typically a 40-year window to work. i got to find something I'm passionate about. So even though it looked like that was the right step, I just wasn't being fulfilled. So I got into real estate, and really, I didn't know anybody. And I just thought, you know, if, but I liked people. I liked houses. And I thought if there's a way I could make a living at this, this would be great. So I started getting the business, and I could work every day, and it didn't feel like work. I said, this is where I need to be. This is where I should be. Now I've got to find a way to hopefully make some money to sustain myself, but I'm, I'm really loving this industry. And so that was really the beginning of my path. Well, that's interesting because, uh, yeah, like it's one of those things that uh, it's not as easy as everybody thinks. I mean, I'm sure when you got in, there was a lot less agents out there. But as we know now, I think we're like at 90,000 agents Is it 90,000? I thought it was 80. Is it 90 it, now? It hit 92 at one point, but we've lost some people since 92,000? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, I tell yeah. my team 80,000. That's, yeah, that's, so that's unbelievable. Crazy. But um, yeah, like I said, we've lost some people since because obvious reasons. So, and obviously that competition makes things harder, but I tend to find that people who were doing well when there was 30,000 agents are still doing well, maybe not all, but a good chunk of them, where most people who kind of gave it a go because it seemed cool, let's be honest, at one point in time when things were a little wonky, it, it seemed to be cool to be an agent. And a lot of people got in that because, you know, people see the facade and they see people going around with the fancy cars. And let's be honest, the majority of the people with the fancy cars are on a lease and not because of a tax write-off, because they'll claim that, but they're on a lease because they have no other way to pay it. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So, uh, but then, you know, I, I found that the industry tends to develop people and you tend to shine over time and people get to see who you are. Now, there's... um. I've been to many brokerages, right? Like I started off with one, I tried a few others and ended up back at the one I started off with. And I found different vibes. Like where I'm gonna go with this is that I noticed, right? Because I know a few agents that are within your organization and I see a difference. And I see a difference in the way that, like prime example, one very popular brand is very greedy and they promote the greed. Right, like I mean, you walk around in the the office, and I would hear it's like you'd have a hum instead of music. You hum going money, 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 money. You know, you have that hum in there, and it just felt that way. And it was like, and they bred that kind of environment. But where I'm going with this is that I noticed that your organization, from talking to people, money's not a conversation; it's culture. Like you've built a culture which is very impressive, 
right? Like, and it's like the conversations we have are really about the market, about the open house, what they have on the market, what's going on, some of the things that are exciting and not just necessarily real estate, but even events and stuff like that. And it's just like overall a positive environment and all that. And kudos to you for doing that. But what are, like, how did you build that, this community and this culture? Like, I mean, it's going to be surrounded based on your values, obviously. Sure. So, I mean, initially when, and going back to my early years in real estate, so you know, the first couple of years were really a grind. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have contacts. So I was knocking on doors. I was going after expiries. I was doing all the things you had to do, but I was committed to this business. I knew that I wanted to be in this for the long run. So I was going to do whatever it took and sacrifice was part of the name of the game, right? So I was prepared to make the sacrifice, still do that today. Um, but at some point, as we started turning the corner, I couldn't really keep up the business volume. So, you know, I, I started building a team organically. It wasn't like, I just want a team for the sake of wanting a team, which is what a lot of people do today. So at the time I had a, te- uh, a roommate of mine who was my childhood friend, he was doing a PhD. And I said, Marty, you should get your license. I need some help. So you kind of ventured in that path. My banker, who at the time was, I was giving a lot of mortgages to, she left her career to join us and my lawyer left his practice. So this was the formation of the first four, but we didn't really have models or systems. It was kind of trial and error, but you know, eventually you know, it became apparent I was probably the worker of the group. So from a hierarchy perspective, I was gonna be the leader, right? And, and I think that was the beginning of the team concept, but from the get-go, it's all about doing the right thing for the clients. It was never, and it's easier to talk about that today, but when you're first starting out and every deal matters and you're trying to get a stay afloat, you've got debt and I had student loans, et cetera. I mean, but I still was true to my values, which is take care of your clients, right? And eventually that really, you know, it, it grows exponentially because they refer people because sometimes people have one good year and they're a shooting star, right? But for us, it was about a career. It wasn't just one good year. And so if we did everything day in, day out the right way, we operated with integrity and honesty, our business will grow and we're humans, we make mistakes, but we own up to them. And if we make a mistake, we'll fix it. Like we'll take ownership. We don't shy away from that. And I think that's been important for our business. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you on that. I mean, and that's preached a lot. And you know what? Let, let me be clear. I mean, like we have a bad rap. We're on the top of a bad rap list, which is not the top that we want to be on. But um, there's very good people out there. And unfortunately, like that misconception out there gives us that bad rap. And it's great when you have someone that's really true to those core values and not just says it. It's not a buzzword. So I like that. And that's and that's what I'm about too, right? I mean, I'm, I've never been in it for money. Although, you know what? I kind of need to pay my bills. So I'm not going to deny that I don't need it. And I but... think the money takes care of itself. Yeah, if you do yeah. the right thing, you don't focus on that. It's going to take care of itself. Absolutely. Now, we've had a lot of ups and downs in the market. And interest rates has been all over the place. And I mean, that's a hot topic right now. And like... I know that interest rates once upon a time, like, I mean, the biggest rebuttal out there is, well, interest rates used to be 19%. Yeah, but houses used to be 200,000. So it's kind of hard to pay a million dollar mortgage at a 10% as an example. I mean, I think we're sitting somewhere between 6.8 and 7.2 at the current market. So there's a lot of challenges coming up on all that. How has this uh, adjustment uh, over the last year and a half, we'll say, affected your business? Oh, I mean, it definitely affected us. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to think about the average buyer who wants to spend, let's say, I call it a million dollars, which, you know, 10, 20 years ago is a crazy amount of money. Now it's, you know, just an average price. Uh, the income requirements, you know, approaching 300,000, right? So in the average Canadian income is 100, 120. So the gap between housing pricing and income is, the, it's, it's grown. The disparity is really big. So, 
you know, and I've kind of been a big, you know, advocate of listening. I understood the stress test when rates were sub 2% for five-year money, but now when you're hovering around six and a half, seven percent and you add a 2% for qualification, it's almost near impossible. So, you know, I think that they should do something with the stress test and also to allow people to get in, maybe stress the amortization again, because right now at a 25-year M for a CMHC or Genworth mortgage, you know, it's so few people qualify. So I think it's been a difficult market for a lot of people to navigate. And I think the crux of it is it happened too quick, too fast, too hard. So, you know, we knew rates would have to go up at some point, but I don't think we would have ever fathomed, you know, 5% plus rate increase in a year and change. I mean, to me, that was just too much. And when you think even mortgage or homeowners, 70% of the people had variable rate mortgages. So now the only way they're staying afloat is the banks granted them, you know, the same monthly payment, but stretched the amortization. So some are sitting at 70, 80 year AMS, which is call it interest only. So so there's fundamental issues right now. And I agree to exactly as you're saying, John, that when, uh, you know, we're first selling real estate, you're buying a place for 100, 150, rates go up a point or two. You could weather that differential, but on a, a, a you know, a beta of one or two million, that's a much different dialogue. Every point makes a big material difference, right? That couple plus, you know, food, gas prices, it's, it's been a challenge for people for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it's, uh, what I found unique in the market is that this whole, like everyone thinks that real estate is a way to get into riches. And to some degree, it is wealth building, but I think it's been overpromoted where a lot of people have over leveraged themselves. And now I think that's going to be part of the problem. And we have what we call the tenant board in Ontario. Oh, sorry, I meant the landlord and tenant board. Yeah. And um, I believe they were at an 18 month wait and they prided themselves in the last couple of months to say we're down to 12 months. You know what I mean? So I have noticed that there's an influx of investors selling their additional homes and leaving Ontario. Um, what have you seen out there in terms of uh, investments and rentals? Why? Well, listen, if we talk about pre-construction a few years ago, is it was guns blazing. Like you, you, there's a lineup a mile long, and now you know the builders are starting to court us again. They didn't have to do anything back then. You know, get it, give us a worksheet. You'll be lucky if you get it filled. Give us twenty worksheets, you'll fill two or three. So I mean, it's just a paradigm shift right now, and I think that. People are very leery about investments. And I also am worried about people who bought a pre-con two, three, four years ago, closing on it next year or two, when they kind of thought rates were gonna be sub 2%. Now they don't even qualify. So we're seeing a big run on those properties as well. So I think there's definitely caution in the air for investors. I mean, you know, people, and, and listen, I understood this early in my, you know, career, actually my life, my life lessons when I was 15, you know, my dad had a very successful business and at 15, he lost everything, right? So, so it went from a place of feeling like you were gonna be comfortable, I could probably plug into the family business. So she's, I gotta pull up my socks. And, but that was in hindsight, the best thing ever happened because it made me the person I am today. But I also realized if I was ever in a fortunate position where I was successful, I didn't wanna be overly leveraged. In fact, I didn't want any leverage if possible, right? So then you can sleep at nights, right? And I see a lot of people trying to double down, triple down. And you always have to ask yourself, Worst case scenario, can you live with that outcome? If you can't, don't do it, right? Because sure, you can think about the best case, that's always rosy, but you have to really think about the worst case from an investment perspective. And I think too many people didn't do that. Early 90s, people got burnt a lot, but 30 years later, people forgot, right? So his memories are short, right? So it's the same cycle where people started buying pre-con now, buying not one or two, but five or 10 or 15 or 20, and that's where it becomes problematic. 100%, I agree with you on that. Now, which brings up the whole condo market, right? And a lot of pre-construction was bought and it was a hot thing, like you said, but there's a little um, kind of a different perspective out there. Like, like some people love condos, some people don't like them. Some of it is a great, you know, thought of as a great investment. Now they're negative cash flows. 
Um, what are your particular thoughts in terms of condos, in terms of investment properties, or in terms of moving in? Like, do you think with the different dynamics that happened in the market, has that outlook changed? Well, I think you have to evaluate each project on a case-by-case basis, right? So right now, the cost per square foot that they're selling at seems really high, right? So, I mean, I've bought definitely a lot of pre-cons where, I mean, I think we did really well, but we bought it five, 600 square foot versus now they're trading 1,100, 1,200, depending where in Toronto, even higher, right? So I, I you know, if, if the builders future valuing the price today, then you got a problem because you're not going to have any benefit of buying something that you're going to have to wait three or four years to close. So I'd be really leery. I wouldn't say no, but I think you just have to really look at each project, make sure you like the builder because we're hearing all sorts of builders now kind of closing shop. And some people I know that are well known that they've kind of over leveraged just like a personal can, so can a builder, right? So you have to be really careful of that. Um, and so there's a lot of moving parts. I wouldn't say no. And, you know, if you're looking to buy real estate and get in, a lot of times people try and time the market. And I think that's ill advice. Get in. Typically, every 10 years, prices double, right? So, and I think today's a great buying market. Next three to six months is a great buying time because there's a lot of people who are really motivated. And, you know, what we find invariably is a lot of buyers are going to wait. No, let's wait. Let's wait until the market starts creeping up. And then they want to get in. I'm like, no, but why do you, when nobody wants to buy, that's when you got to get in because you know our market's going to do well. And at some point, it's going to rebound. And right now, we're going through a tough period, but that's not, it's, it's short lived. It won't be whether it's six months, a year, a year and a half, but why not buy during a period where you can really take advantage of a market that's softer, right? And I think people need to understand if you have the courage to go against the grain, you'll succeed. Absolutely. Now, what, is it fair to say that we're, we've entered into a buyer's market? Yeah, yeah. Uncategorically, yes. Yeah, I, I thought so too. And which goes to the point. Now, the opportunities come in while everyone's leaving. So as people are exiting, now's the opportunity for people to get in. So. Listen, we're, Toronto's always going to be a world-class city. Right now, we're going through our challenges for many different reasons. And so you're not, it's not one of these one industry-based, you know, cities like, you know, some place where it's oil, oil's doing well, then the market booms. If it's not, then it retreats. You know, we're, we're a very, very strong city. So right now, we're just going through fundamental changes that are adverse, but that's going to come back. So if you're a buyer today, if you can get in, get in, because really, if you're in the game, you're always going to succeed. You might see a bit of a turn. You might... Prices might be flat for a year, but at the end of the day, you're going to see success in the long term. If you're looking for, you know, get rich quick scheme, it's not real estate, right? You have to think about a long term play. Right, right. So you probably share my opinion on uh, real estate flips, right? I think uh, HGTV has um, published too many flips out there <laughs> <laughs> and people watch that and think they're going to do it too. Listen, it's a slippery slope. Like, I mean, it, it's it's so easy to make it look good on TV, right? And I think, once again, the question is, what's my worst case scenario? If it doesn't work, can I rent it? Can I can still, you know, sustain this property? If the answer is no, don't do it, right? But, I mean, I've seen people who can't, who've come to me over the last year who made some, you know, like, I mean, they were so over leveraged. I, I mean, buying tens and tens and tens of properties without the financial capacity. Like, you know, that's a recipe for suicide. Like, okay, if the market goes up, but I'm really positive by nature, except on looking investments, I also have to think worst case because that's the way you're going to succeed. Otherwise you can follow yourself. You find yourself in a really difficult position. hundred percent. Now, what are your thoughts about people, you know, partnering up together? Because I mean, like we, we were talking about earlier, the affordability is really challenging now, but I always think that if you can get into a property by splitting it with someone, I mean, whether someone takes, just say, a bungalow, somebody takes upstairs, somebody takes downstairs, or they buy it together and rent it out and use it to build equity so they can later transition and buy something else on their own. 
Like that's one thought I had. What are your thoughts about people partnering? I like that idea, provided you have a pretty clear idea of how the you know the arrangement will work with a partnership. Because sometimes partnerships don't they sour, right? So as long as you have a clear definition, listen, here's what we're doing, here's how long we're doing it for, and if it doesn't work out, we have a shotgun gloss, etc. You know, and I think in this market it's something to explore because it is so difficult to get in on your own. But as long as you're very, you know, you trust your partner, you know, you're aligned with your vision, then it's something to consider for sure. Awesome. Now, going back into your uh, your structure, I mean, you started off as uh, with a different brokerage on a uh, team level you built up, and now you built up your own brokerage, which is phenomenal. And you started off with one location and two locations. How many locations are you up to now? You're up to seven. Awesome. And I would say, like, if I'm not wrong, correct me, you're anywhere from like Hamilton to downtown? Fantastic. And now, what is the future plan on that? Well, you know, interestingly, we were the pretty big operation, too, that were really good companies. It was a great uh, platform for us, a stepping stone for us. And about 12 years ago, we came to the revelation, it's probably time for McDaddy Real Estate. And I bounced it off our team members. And at first, I had some trepidation because I wasn't sure how this was going to go because we were so used to being affiliated with a large brand. And our team said, I think we're ready to pull this off. I think our brand can carry and then I bounced off a good mentor of mine, and he said, Sam, I think you can do this. And so we planned about four or five months, um, gave our broker ample notice, to be fair. Um, and then we opened, and I remember the first day, nine o'clock, we're all ready for business. We've got our deal secretary, we've got our office, we're all, all business. You know, and then nine to 12, not one phone call. So I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what happened here. Maybe I miscalculated. And then we get a call around midday from the phone company saying, listen, your phone lines were down, you're up and running now. And then from there, everything was good, right? But we were kind of sweating for a little bit, but it's been a great journey. And I've, I've been grateful for the, you know, affiliation we've had with previous brokerages, but I think this is great for us because it allows us to build, as you alluded to, John, our culture, right? So, and, you know, if you if I had a franchise with, you know, Remax, for example, then I'm restricted to certain territories and grids where now we can buy any location we want and it's up to us to decide how we're going to run it. So if the business fails, it squarely falls on me, right? And I'm okay with that because that's what I want. I don't want to be dependent on anybody else. I think it's been a great model for us. And, you know, we've worked really hard to build a brand that's synonymous with honesty, transparency, et cetera. And I think, you know, our, our future hopefully is going to get brighter. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with that being said, right, like, would you say it's a good time for people to get in the industry? Like, there's people out there that are searching for the career. Because let's be honest, most people, when they start their uh, journey, you know, at, at 17, 18, you know, not most people don't know what they want to do in their life. They don't know where they're going to go. And most people take, you know, go to university and get a useless degree. Um, and I'm not saying university is useless. I mean, it's but if you're going there just to get a degree and then and there ha you have no purpose or destination, you know, like get a philosophy degree. If you want to be a carpenter, that's really not going to be right. a match. Right. So and people don't know. So I think my personal opinion is people shouldn't go to school until they know what they want and, and then decide if they need it. But my question is, is that sometimes they decide that it is not for them or they graduated, they don't know what they want and they're interested in real estate. So for that person who's interested and is, wants to take the leap but are not sure, what would you say to them? Well, listen, if it's the right career for you and you like people, you like houses, you understand you're pretty much on call 24-7 and you can live with that, um, then it could be a really good career. And it doesn't matter to me whether there's, you know, 30,000 or 100,000 realtors because there's always room at the top. Um, and if you if you all have to understand, it's the same thing. A lot of realtors get in the business thinking it's going to be a really easy business. 
I mean, it's not, it's anything but that, right? But it's a business that I think has a lot of pluses. So you set your own hours, your own, your own bosses, no glass ceiling. Um, so you work hard, you get rewarded. So there's many reasons why I think it makes sense. Um, but if it's the right fit for you, right? And it may not be right fit for everybody. And a lot of people, unfortunately, as you know, John, a lot of realtors in the business today, um, they don't sell any houses. So you've got 90, I didn't realize it was that number. Honestly, I, I was telling people 80, and I thought that was absurdly high, right? So 90,000 plus. You know, I want 80,000 don't sell you know, hardly any houses, right? So then for me, it's not the right fit for them. And, and I also think real estate should be a long-term, like it should be a full-time play, right? Because if you're doing it part-time, you're almost doing your client a disservice, right? Because at the end, it's such a fluid business. There's so many moving parts and you're trusting somebody with their biggest financial asset. So if you're not really doing it full-time, you're not probably providing the best possible service to your clientele. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I, I, I agree with you on that full-time basis part. And, and you're right. Now, you, you brought up a good point here. It was something I've understood myself is the whole, uh, you're kind of working all the time. Now, how, does, how do you balance family life and, uh, and, and, and business at the same time? It's always a juggling act for sure. So you want to be able to spend quality time with family, with friends, um, and all the above. And so for me, I also really like to spend a few hours on myself in the morning, be it workout, et cetera, et cetera. So you almost have to block off some hours for yourself because for me, what I think we're most proud about is not only potentially getting to the top, but staying there, right? And I think that's the most difficult because you sometimes you burn out and it's easy to burn out. And a lot of people I've seen over the years, last 30 plus years, they've been great realtors, but at some point they just had enough, right? And so for us, you know, we're still fresh. We still love the business. But as for me, it's also, I think, a reflection of building a really good team around us as well, a really good supporting cast. Because when I first started off, I had difficulty delegating. I couldn't let go. So I was doing everything. I was running the ads. I was kind of qualifying GDS, TDS, sending to the banks and da-da-da. And you can only do that for so long before you just body says, hey, I can't do this 24-7, right? So so in my first hire, which I always tell people today is probably the most important, get a great administrator that can alleviate some of those tasks from you so you can free yourself up to to do the selling and meeting with clients, being in front of people, et cetera, right? So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it's funny because you said you had trouble delegating. I mean, literally, that's exactly where I am right now. It's one of those things that I, I keep doing things myself and I keep preaching. You shouldn't do things for yourself. And then I just repeat. <laughs> so it's like, I mean, you're speaking to me with that when I'm listening to it and I'm going, okay, well, I gotta maybe I got to do something about well, this. John, it's <laughs> interesting because I went from having real difficulty letting it go where I was still micromanaging to the point where now I've got four or five personal administrators and they freed me up so much, right? It's been so, now, I mean, of course, somebody starting off, they're not gonna have five administrators. They might at some point add one or even maybe share somebody with, you know, another agent's type. But that you really, I mean, if people are spending their time, they can say, I had a really busy day. I spent 12 hours working, but if they spend five hours putting a lock boxes up in this, well, that's not really productive, right? So you have to think what your value is. And if your value exceeds the amount you can pay somebody per hour, then you should delegate that, right? So. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what would you say to an agent getting into the business? How do they uh, prioritize, you know, spending and saving? Is there certain choices that they need to spend? And there's certain things that some people find important and they spend on and maybe they shouldn't. Well, for me, it was clear when I first got my license and I started off with a company called Home Life and I walked in, I was all excited. And that's when I was transitioning from corporate. And I said, okay, guys, what do I do today? I'm excited. They said, well, here's uh, what they call the Bowers book and it had all these names and numbers on the streets. Just start calling. I said, call, what, what do I do with these calls? We'll see if they want to sell. 
And I started doing that. You make 100 calls a day. And I could tell that wasn't going to be for me. I said, if I have to call every day 100 times and to get one yes or maybe for... So I thought I had to build a brand where people were synonymous, hopefully, with real estate. Now, of course, I didn't have the money at the time. But, you know, the age-old thing, put 10% back into marketing. And then you eventually we started getting our brand recognition and grew. And so as our business grew, we could kept plowing more money back in. And we knew we were in this for the long run. It wasn't a one-year gig. It was like a forever gig. So we didn't mind investing, reinvesting back in our business because eventually we were hopeful that was going to pay dividends. And it did, right? But it takes, you know, the problem today, especially the younger generation, they want it all instantly. Yeah. And, you know, I see I had a successful career, but it was a 35-year, you know, overnight success, right? So, so I mean, it takes a long time to really get to that place, but people don't want, don't, they just wanted yesterday. They want instant gratification, but that's not the real world. Any athlete, anybody who's done well, any successful business person's paid, paid, paid the dues with a lot of heavy lifting to get to where they are today. And then the people only see you at the end when you've had success, but they've, they haven't seen the journey to get there, right? So it's important for young people to realize, hey, you can do well in real estate, but it's not overnight. And if you happen to have a great year, but early in the game, that's great. That's a bonus, but you're building towards that. And that's what you have to recognize. Absolutely. Now you brought up a good point here, which is about self-awareness, right? Now myself as well, when I get the first day I started in the business, I got the same thing, right? Where you get all, like people said, hey, you got to start cold calling. And my answer was that if I have to start cold calling, I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> right, 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 for sure, <laughs> for like, sure. Because I knew that wasn't for me. But you're obviously just as self-aware about yourself as I am, but not many people are. Like, when did you become self-aware? Like, were, was this something you've always known what you wanted or is this something you just developed? No, but I realized the things I didn't like to do when I was doing them. I said, I don't like to do this, right? So I don't really want to. And, and for an action to be repeatable, you have to enjoy it, right? So if I tell my team members, oh, you have to knock on doors, but they absolutely don't like doing that, right? Well, they're not going to repeat that action, right? So you have to find, hey, where's my sweet spot where I actually enjoy it and I can do it and not feel like it's a, it's something I just really despise having to do because you were not going to sustain that right so to me i knocked on doors and i said yeah i don't really like that right so you know I, and some people love it and that's great and and i i cold call i didn't like that so that's why i knew i want the phone to ring and then i could sh showcase my skill sets um if the phone was ringing for me and that was kind of the, what i think re i realized early in the in my career right which brings up the point marketing or sales which one's more important <laughs> I think both are important. I think, of course, marketing. So the problem, you can be a great salesperson, but if you're not known, you're not out there, and you don't have a chance to have a target audience, you're not going to have success. So marketing is a very important piece to give your ability, to give your chance, a chance to shine with your sales skills, right? So yeah. So for me, I think, listen, I think there's a lot of great realtors um, that probably would do really well, but they're just not known, right? So, and I think what we've done is really go, you know, on steroids trying to get known, right? So we did everything we could from marketing initiative you know, BTV, this, that, so that, and then we back it up, right? So we don't just say we're this, but then we do everything we can to provide the best possible service and outcome, right? So uh, I, I'm sure there's great people out there that I think if they allocate some money towards marketing on a year-to-year -year basis versus being silent, their business would start going bigger, you know, more exponentially than it is today, probably. 100%. I'm, I'm, I agree with you on that. Like, that's why I'm, I'm a big fan of marketing. Yeah. I mean, it's a yeah. big thing. Like, I believe that, I mean, I believe it's important to have good sales skills. Like, don't misunderstand me, but I believe uh, you can pitch anybody anything you want, but if you're not well-known enough, you won't be able to pitch enough people. For sure. Yeah, so, I agree with that. Yeah. Awesome. Now, a lot of times, like I noticed just by my own observation, you get into a lot of philanthropy, right? And you like to uh, get involved in that a lot and, you know, donate a lot. And uh, what's the motivation behind it? I mean, because we can give out to many different charities, but we often touch things that are close to us. 
Yeah, so, um, you know, my dad uh, passed away about 22 years ago and change, and he died from complications with lung cancer surgery. So I remember when he passed away, I was like, it's the first time I lost somebody that I love so much. It was very hurtful. Um, and still, you know, we look at life differently now. I'm just glad he was my dad, et cetera. But back then, the pain was very strong. And so, you know, I started driving once a week for cancer patients just to kind of try and do something to, you know, in honor of my dad. And then, you know, of course, as our business started growing, you know, we got behind the hospital because I always thought that was a good initiative. Um, and, you know, I, I don't like to talk about it too much, but there's, you know, we probably get five, 10 emails every day for people looking for some sort of assistance or sponsorships. And, you know, we try as best we can to give a bit to everybody, right? So, um, and it could be somebody who's just, I'm playing baseball and I need my son, da-da-da, and we'll give something towards that and da-da-da. And, and we're really happy to do that, but it's really interesting. I don't think any of that because I think it's almost our moral obligation if we're in a position to help to try and help. Now, I'll probably give more weight to somebody who somebody calls me or emails me, my mom's got cancer and she can't pay for a hospital, then I'll step up at a higher level because that's life and death, right? Somebody needs sponsorship for, you know, sporting events or teams, I'll help. But, you know, it's if, if I had to weigh the two, I'd go towards the one who's life and death, right? So, uh, but it's interesting because one of my um, teammates, administrators and agents, she was doing some fundraising for her son's hockey team and a lot of people, she only reached people that she knew and she couldn't even raise $10, right? So, and I was like really shocked. I said, really, you couldn't even raise any money? So it's kind of, to me, that was so, it sounds so foreign because I thought, I mean, if people, in 10, 20, okay, I understand it's a difficult economic time, but 10, $20, I think anybody can do, right? I don't think it's gonna fail. I mean, just maybe have one less meal, one less pack of cigarettes, whatever that is. So I was just shocked how sometimes people aren't willing to maybe help out. And I, to me, that didn't really, I, it didn't resonate with me because I didn't understand. I didn't. In our team, we got behind the Trillium Health Partners and we pledged a million dollars, which, you know, we're proud of that. And um, it's interesting because we felt pretty good about that. And then, you know, one day, I think at the part of the hospital gatherings, they said, Peter Gilligan, Madame, he's pledged 105 million. And so I kind of sunk my chair. Oh, <laughs> but no, but I was really proud because it's such a, I mean, he's such a philanthropist. You see all the different hospitals where he's helping out. And I have a huge amount of admiration for people who step up. And, you know, so if you're in a position where you can help, I mean, listen, I think it's really enjoy, nice to enjoy material possessions, but I think it should be a balance where you also give back and make a difference in life. So, I agree with you 100% on that. And um, yeah, you're right. It's uh, interesting out there these days. I mean, you're right. Like, you know, we should be able to get more than five or 10 bucks. And I think, I don't want to say it's a reflection of society. I just think that uh, things are a little different today. And I think that maybe we need more, uh, I, I think it's, it's more like we need more education out there in the right areas. That's, uh, I think that's the easiest way for me to say it. And I, I think that uh, we were, like people are tied to that materialistic thing that they think they need the materials to be happy and it's that whole i'll be happy when you know what i mean and reality is you can reach those goals and you're still not happy right so i i think it's uh, people don't realize that though until no. they get there <laughs> no I, like you know i don't feel any different i thought i was gonna feel a certain way and i don't and so i think you have to be happy within and then everything else is just a bonus after yeah yeah like i mean my uh when i had my marketing business I was one of those guys, young, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I used to tell my dad, I'm going to strike it rich. And he would look at me, go to school. Really? <laughs> and I remember all that. And I remember like, I got my marketing business to eight figures. I mean, and I was all, and you know what? I was never so miserable. I got so overwhelmed with everything and you're 
dealing with things at a different level when you hit that. And when you're starting off at negative 40,000, you don't realize that when you get to that, things change. And it's just like the problems don't go away. They just, the problems change. Right, right, right. For <laughs> sure. Like, Different set of problems. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that was a real learning lesson because, uh, and especially, you know, doing that, I also lost it. Right. And I didn't lose it because the business went bad. I sold the business for more than what I asked for. I lost it because I had what I call a spending problem. Right. And I've always been like that, where if I if I want a boat, I'll go and buy a boat. No second thought about it. Um, that was a wake up call. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, there's a lot of learning lessons. And, and I believe we are a product of what we learn. Too many people out there are afraid to fail. And I think that the lesson shouldn't be, be afraid to fail, but what do you learn from that and how can you move forward from that? So my question from this is going to be, when you started making the transition from, you know, brokerage to your own brokerage, what was your biggest hurdle? Yeah, that's a good question. So it was interesting because we already had our team together. We already had our own physical office that we owned in North Mississauga, which was our first office. So, I mean, the transition was a little bit easier than just starting from the get-go because everything was kind of all set up. We already had our branding colors. Um, I was with the Remax before I went to, you know, started McDowney Real Estate, but they allowed us to have our own branding colors. Um, so it was a pretty easy transition on many levels. But, you know, now it's managing a lot of people and you've got supporting staff, you know, the cast, which is receptionist and this and that. So there's a lot of layers that, you know, we I didn't have to deal with earlier on when I was selling. But, you know, what I did it was just back to what we were talking about you know, I found really good people to take care of that business, right? So, because I was still in my heart, I love selling, I love marketing, and I love mentoring my team, et cetera. So that's where I knew I was going to spend my core time. Um, but there is, of course, when you open a business, there's different nuances that you have to get acclimated to and realize, yeah, and, and I built it just by having the right people handle that side, right? So Yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. Now, your reputation earlier on was uh, a luxury specialist. And a lot of times when it was synonymous with that. So when someone thinks you're selling something, must be, you know, a very uh, expensive home. Now, I noticed one of your um, lines, I don't know, what do I call it? Like, one of your things was like, no home is too small or, or too big or too small, right? So clearly, obviously, that must have been to uh, combat that. Well, interestingly, I, you know, when I first started off, I was a first-time buyer specialist. And I was dealing with properties that were $80,000. And I really honed my craft as helping buyers. Um, and then they referred a lot of people. And that's where we talked about the team concept of Evolve because I just couldn't handle the business volume, which was growing organically. Then probably about, I'm going to say 15, maybe 20 years ago, I said, you know what? We're doing a lot of the low mid, you know, mid pricing, but now we have, have a lot of value added services. We have our own house staging, we have our own furniture and accessories, we have inspectors, we market locally, nationally, internationally. So we should be able to get a piece of the high end. And honestly, within six months, we were really successful with that venture to the point where, you know, a lot of people started thinking, oh, you're only high end now, right? And so that was a dangerous, slippery slope because while we enjoyed being in the high end market, we didn't want to lose um, the, the mid price point because that's really our bread and butter at the end of the day, right? So, you know, and we're fighting that today still. Oh, no, don't, you know, I, I don't think Sam will deal with me because it's only X dollar price. And we're like, listen, even if it's a rental, we'll help you because right? it's what the service experience and building client relations. But so in, right now we're going into a partnership with uh, the Raptors 
And I said, our message we want is no house to be too small because people always equate us with, you know, now luxury. We're helping, you know, the $10, $20 million house, which of course we have that in our portfolio, but we're fighting hard to make sure people know that we cover all, all sectors of real estate. So, Yeah, that makes sense. That makes total sense. So when you started, like, let, let's be honest, if you try to be everything for everybody, you usually be a lot of nothing for nobody. And I'm certain or pretty sure... You know, you, you started off with a certain niche. How did you, do, you know, figure out what that niche is going to be? Well, I, I think for me, I was a guy in my 20s and I thought that, you know, working with people my age, first time buyers would be great because at some point, you know, we they're going to have probably a lot of friends. And, and interestingly, when I first started my career, I didn't even like listings. I didn't even know what listings were. Oh, I don't want a listing. No, no, I just want to work with buyers. I mean, it's, and you know, people always just say you have to list to last and all these kind of different you know, phrases, but uh, but at some point, three, four years later, they'd want to sell. So I said, of course, I'll retain the business. Um, so I knew early that, you know, I want to focus on being a first time buyer specialist. I hone my craft so that people would come in, I'd educate them, I'd empower them. They'd feel really good about our kind of interaction. They'd felt like they could like and trust me. So we didn't just get in the car. We first, you know, really understood their wants and needs. So it wasn't just like a realtor. Let's go look at houses. Let's sell you house. I made sure they understood every single cost, including, listen, you have heat, hydro, water. Let's guesstimate or estimate that you have phone and cable. So they knew the exactly the monthly cash outlay all in, right? And so, you know, we took pride in making sure they're well-educated and that I think is how we grew our business with a first buyer, first time buyer segment. Makes total sense. And I noticed that uh, a lot of your ads have a lot of uh, athletes and sports figures in there. And obviously you just said something about uh, working with the Raptors. So obviously sports is a very big, you know, thing to you. And where did that come about? Well, I mean, I've loved sports since uh, as a child and, you know, being on a tennis scholarship years ago, I mean, tennis was probably my first love. And so, um, and then, you know, when I started watching a good friend of mine, Snap Badia, the super fan, and um, when uh, DeMar got traded, I had the privilege of having the seats that, you know, formerly were held by DeMar that Nav owned the licensing rights to. So that was my journey with basketball. And I just, Loved the game. I mean, going there courtside was an experience I thought was unbelievable. And I first, you know, obtained the tickets. I thought I'd give a lot of tickets away to different clients and family and friends. And I thought, you know what, I'm enjoying this so much. I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to enjoy all these games. And and we within grew organically with the organization. So they kind of said, if you'd like to help some of the players, etc. And so I'm never one of these guys who pushes for anything. I mean, if it happens and grows organically, great. If not, that's fine too as well. So. You know, we've done different fun things now. We've got a, a segment on CP24 called McDaddy Open House. We bring a different athlete in every month and stuff. And whether it's baseball or, you know, tennis or basketball or what have you, football. So it's been a lot of fun. And it's kind of coming back full circle to being involved with things that I really am passionate about as well. Makes sense. I was, uh, I used to go to a Raptors game all the time. I remember um, it was kind of funny. I, my uh, supplier at the time when I was in the marketing and print business so uh, what happens is that he was very temperamental as am I and I remember uh, one time we got a, we got into it and uh, like it was just one of those things where I said screw it I'm never coming back now where I'm going with this is the guy tried to get me back and I wouldn't answer his phone calls and eventually I got two uh, Raptor tickets from him I'm like mm, okay right we made a deal everything was good he gave me Raptor tickets so I thought, this is pretty cool. So I went there. I remember being front seat. I could have, like, I was back in the day when Vince Carter was still playing there. 
I mean, I was so close. I could have gone, excuse me. <laughs> you know, like I was amazed by it. So then I got this fascinating idea that every so often I wanted to see a game. I'd call up and say, you know, call him up and say, screw you, hang up and see what happens. He calls up and goes, you want Raptor tickets, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Well, I think that's probably the most entertaining sport, especially for courtside. And, and there's, you know, great entertainment. I went to a hockey game with, uh, earlier this week and it's great to watch the Leafs, but I think the Raptors entertainment value is much higher. Yeah, and I find that watching sports in person is way different than the TV. Like, I can watch almost any sport in person. But on TV, I'm very selective. Um, the only sport I've never been to, I've never been to a hockey game. Yeah, I, I just never got tickets, never been, was able to get it. Now, the one time I was able to get it, I had to choose between graduating or going. Because it was like, the you know, it was, I had too many uh, missed attendance. So one more day would have got me... Uh, <laughs> so I thought I should go to school. So I never ended up going and I never got tickets again. And that was that. So, but I've been to every I'm other sport. Actually, yeah. yeah. Like, so I was surprised yeah. too, believe me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah I used to, I, I love sports for that. I loved playing them. That was the uh, thing. Right. So I was, I was very athletic growing up. Well, 91 at 15, you know, mile per hour. It's pretty impressive. Right. So, yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I was never the best player on the team, but I was within the top five. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's impressive for sure. And did you throw a curveball and any other pitches or was it just fast? Fastball. I had other pitches, but my talent really was the fastball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And um yeah, I was I was uh I was good at hockey too. But my problem with hockey is I never knew how to stop. So somebody would deem me, you know, junior Wendell Clark. What they didn't know is I wasn't checking the guy to be uh, that thing. I didn't know how to stop. So I'd find the, the opponent and knock into him just so I could so you stop. you didn't know how to put the brakes on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I tried one time, then I did it like a grown. I looked like a freaking ballerina. I said, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so then I just bump into whatever, and that was it. <laughs> it's like I caused a couple of ruckus, and it wasn't for no reason but I, the fact that I couldn't stop. <laughs> So, yeah, awesome. And I, and I guess, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, it's, I, I think having something outside of just work is important, right? Like, if you're, if you love sports and stuff, it's like something to, you know, something to take your mind off one thing or whatever. And it's something, and I believe, like, business is like a sport and the way, like, it's competitive like a sport and uh, your team members are what matters. And, you know what I mean? Like, and you're out there. And I think where some people got it wrong is that you don't go out there to conquer the next person. I believe it's about collaboration. And I think the more you collaborate with people, the better opportunity you get. For sure. For sure. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Awesome. 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 So now, where do you think, where do you think we're going to be uh, heading to over the next five years? Well, you know, there's definitely a housing shortage right now. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, next three to six months, I think, will be challenging times. I think people are going to have to recalibrate and expectations have to, expectations have to change a little bit. Um, but I still think we'll be fine. And I mean, I think we'll weather the storm over the next year or so. And I think, that, you know, year two, three, four, five, we'll be back to, you know, what I think is a normal market. And I don't think it's ever healthy when prices go up 30% a year. So okay. I think slow and steady wins the race. So if prices are going up inflationary plus a point or two, then that's sustainable. But you know when it starts doing this, there has to be a bit of this, right? It's just, it can't do this continuously. So for a decade, it was doing a bit of this and it was healthy and also I did this, right? And then now that's why you're seeing a bit of a, a dip after that, so. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Awesome. Love that. So I'm going to have a couple more questions sure, for you. Sure. Then I'm going to go into what I call a lightning round. Let's do it. All right. So my second last question is going to be, how do you know you've had a successful day? Wow. That's a great question. So, I mean, to me, at the end of the day, if I look back and say, wow, I accomplished everything I want to do. I, you know, I had a great day at the real estate office. I had a great day personally. I had a good workout in. I had some nice meals. I had a lot of good laughs. So it's not just work. It's the whole gamut, right? So if I go to bed and put my head down and say, and I was also very productive, um, then I'm happy, right? And so, and, you know, we strive for that every day. And I think by nature, I'm more positive. So, you know, of course, there's times things will get you down. We're humans, but I try to always see things um, from a positive perspective. And, you know, more often, I think I have good days, right? But of course, there's some days you're like, oh, this is not the perfect day. But let's, and I think the key when you have a bad day, you have to kind of just put that behind you and learn from whatever went wrong and bounce back quickly because you don't want to find yourself kind of two, three, four, five bad days and all of a sudden it's hard to come back up, right? So if I do have a bad day, usually I can kind of get that under the system within a short order. Which is awesome. All right, last but not least is going to be for anybody who's watching this and wants to reach out to you, where would they go? Sure, you can reach me at sam at mcdaddy.com or you can call me directly at 416-801-2400. Fantastic. All right, let's get into the lightning round. Which let's is just do it. Some personal questions that are fun, like uh, what is your favorite food and why? Uh, I'm a pescatarian now, so I love seafood and I all the Mediterranean diet I love. And I think seafood's right up there. Yeah, I can agree with you on that. <laughs> um, if you had any, anywhere to go, what, where would you go? Like what's your favorite destination? Uh, favorite trips. I mean, I guess I can go singular. I mean, I think I did a safari in South Africa, Zam uh, Botswana, Zambia, which I loved. It was just a real eye opener. So I would say, you know, something near nature and being exposed to nature and seeing you know, animals in their in their true form was incredible for me. Amazing. All right. Favorite podcast or book? Um, how to Win Friends and Influence People. I read that when I was in my early 20s. It was a real eye-opener and helped shape how I was going to deal with people. Um, podcasts, wow, I, Joe Rogan I do like. I think he's got some pretty cool information, so I'll say Joe Rogan. Fantastic. All right. Last but not least, if you were given an unlimited amount of money but only 48 hours to spend it, what you spend, you get to keep. What you uh, don't spend gets taken away. What would you do? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. After, you know, working so hard and, and so long and having a bit of financial success, I mean, I, I, I'd probably, if I had 48 hours, honestly, I, I, and this sounds like, you know, but I, I think I, I understood material possessions don't bring you happiness, right? So that doesn't matter as much to me these days. I think if I could give back and make a dent, that'd probably be my biggest contribution. Fantastic. Like I said, it was a total option of what you want to do, right? <laughs> awesome. Sam, thank you so very much for doing this interview. It's a pleasure, John. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to The John Papaloni Show. This episode has been sponsored by They Record.